Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year. There's no offseason, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on the 14th day of August, 2018, from the Sully Baseball studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Melvin, and just a line drive from Sunken Diamond, the baseball home of the Stanford Cardinal. Well, look at folks. Uh, the National League is absolutely nuts right now. It is impossible to take a look at the standings right now and even see a, 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 see a front runner in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I appeared on the great uh, podcast Baseball PhD over the weekend when we talked a little bit about the Phillies, and I I'm leaning towards the Phillies to win the division. Although right now the Atlanta Braves are leading the division. Uh, it's so crazy right now that the right now if the playoffs started today, the Phillies would play the Brewers in the wild card game. The winner of that would play the Cubs, and the Diamondbacks would play the Braves, which means the Dodgers, who won a hundred and something games last year in the pennant, would be on the outside looking in, and they had a disastrous loss last night. Their bullpen is all messed up. Uh, Colorado is on a winning streak. Did you know that the Cardinals are in a six-game winning streak and are only two games out of a playoff spot, one out in the loss column? The Dodgers are in a free fall, but do you know what? This could all change. This can all change tomorrow because what makes it so bananas is the Phillies are only one game back, the Rockies are only one game back, the Dodgers are only one game back, the Cardinals are only two games back of a playoff spot, and the Brewers are playing the Cubs. Now, by the time you hear this, that game will be over, but they're, they're head-to-head. If the Brewers wind up winning the series against the Cubs, they'll only be two, you know, about two games back if they win this series. So it's really, who's going to win anything? It's just going to depend on what, it's going to be whatever happens the last week. Which means you have to look at almost every single goddamn game, sorry, Ray, from this point forward, and say, well, we can't really afford to lose any dumb games. Now, there's going to be times, you know, each team has about somewhere between 40 and 45 games left at this point. Some of those games are just going to be the other team just going to have it. It's going to be like one of those you know six to one games. You know that you just lost. We just they, they were just better today. You have to do is you have to eliminate the dumb games. Last night was a dumb game for Los Angeles. They had Clayton Kershaw pitching lights out. Kenley Jansen is out with a heart condition. Obviously, you want nothing but the best to happen for him. Uh, and then you had, they, they brought in some kid named Alexander who just, he looked like Don Knotts on the mound and couldn't throw a strike and set up what turned into a wild uh, ninth inning when it was clear after, you know, after, I mean, I was rooting for the Giants because I'm up here. I have no ill will towards Los Angeles. I'd like to see them do well. But I'm like screaming into television going like, Roberts, take this guy out. Obviously, he's not Mariano Rivera. Obviously, he's not Brad Lidge circa 2008. So get another human being up there. And that was a dumb loss for Los Angeles. 
and you can't afford dumb losses. It's got the difference between the division and playing a one game wild card is probably going to be a game. And probably the difference between the making the wild card and not might be a game as well. You know how they do the thing on the final day of the season, all the games start at the same time? The the American League, I mean, unless there's a free fall with the Astros or the Yankees or something like that, yeah, we have a pretty good idea of who's what and what's who in the American League right now. Look, the Red Sox and the Indians are winning their division. Uh, the Astros have let the A's crawl within two games, but there's not going to be... The only question really is, will Seattle make the playoffs or not? That's really the only question. In the National League, every team that is currently in first place has a road to miss the playoffs. The Braves, the Cubs, the Diamondbacks are currently all in first place. The Cubs have the biggest lead, and that's three games, and they're playing head-to-head with Milwaukee. If Milwaukee winds up having a good series. I mean, this is there's you don't know what's going to happen. It's a coin flip. A team, one of the following teams are going to be in the World Series. The Atlanta Braves, Philadelphia Phillies. I do, I no longer think the Nationals. I'm sorry. They're one game over 500. They're losing stupid games. They're losing walk-off games. They you can't you can't make up this much ground. I'm going to I'm going to psychologically eliminate the Nationals and I'm also going to eliminate the Pirates who are a wonderful story and may finish with a winning record, but I I think it's just too crowded. The Braves, the Phillies, Cubs, Milwaukee Brewers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, Rockies, LA Dodgers. One of those teams will be in the World Series this year. One of those teams is going to have a year where they look up and say, yeah, we made it this far. And with the exception of the Cubs, Cardinals, or Los Angeles, for every one of the rest of those teams, Rockies, Diamondbacks, Brewers, Phillies, Braves, this would be a generational moment for their fans to be like, oh my God, we're in the World Series. I didn't think that would happen. Yeah, it's a bit of a stretch to say that for the Phillies, who were in the World Series as recently as 2009. But, hey, that was almost a whole decade ago. And there are lots of new fans who don't really have a memory of that. And would be turning the page. And yet, how many teams did I just list? Atlanta, Philadelphia, Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Arizona, Colorado, Los Angeles. That's eight teams. Of those eight teams that I just mentioned... Three of them will not be playoff teams. They all can look in the mirror and say, we have a chance to win the pennant. And they can all look in the mirror and say, we could miss the playoffs altogether. So it really boils down to, you cannot win stupid games. If you're winning late, you have to close that game out. Because if you don't, That could be the game you circle back saying, we missed a game, didn't we? Oh, God, remember when we were up 2-1 and Clayton Kershaw was dealing and we brought in some schmuck who was the 15th caller on 570 AM in Los Angeles 
and had him pitch and didn't have you know immediately seven other pitchers warming up to come in that's a dumb loss that my friend is a dumb loss and so here we go of the teams there who would I pick to win the pennant right now I suppose Chicago right now I'd say maybe Chicago to win the pennant again but they don't have the pitching staff that is they're vulnerable absolutely they are I'll say the Cubs maybe right now but ask me tomorrow will be a different thing now the the Yankees lost last night and they are now 10 games back of the Red Sox they lost at home to the Mets the, the the Yankees had that humiliating sweep by my beloved Red Sox a couple weeks ago. And since then, they've played eight games. And they've won six of them. Now, when you take a look at psychologically what happens to a team after a brutal loss, and losing those four games to the Red Sox was brutal for the Yankees. And you have to give the Yankees credit that in the next eight games, they won six of them. That is a clip. If you do that all year, that is a 750 clip. That is a that is winning three out of every four games. That is a tremendous response by the Yankees to say, do you know what? Yeah, we just got humiliated on national television. We're going to rebound. And a couple of those games... They, they rebounded quite well, and they won that extra inning game with, against the White Sox. They rebounded after a bad loss to the, the Texas Rangers by coming back and winning that series. Yeah, the White Sox and the Rangers aren't really great teams, but you know what? That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, if you're a team with, with images of a World Series dancing in your head, you're supposed to beat the bad teams. That's how it that's how it's supposed to work. I mean the Red Sox you know beat the snot out of the Baltimore Orioles who stink. They played four games against them, they won all four. That's what you're supposed to do. And the Yankees did what they're supposed to do. If you win three out of four constantly, guess what? You're doing your job as a team. And this is why the Red Sox are gonna win the division, is because the Yankees won six out of eight games. Played at a 750 clip and lost half a game in the standings. They fell back. They played 750 ball and regressed. Which, on the one hand, is kind of a microcosm of what's happening with the Yankees this year. If you read Yankee Twitter, if you go to all the you know River Avenue Blues, Pinstripe Alley. All you know, you you follow Stacy Gutsulius on Twitter. You listen, you know, you read Subway Squawkers. You check out Jason Keidel on WFAN. You do all the stuff that you do in Friends of the Podcast and everything. You would think that the Yankees were the Mets playing four thirty one ball. The Yankees are playing six twenty seven ball. Do you know what that is over 162 games? That's 101 wins. The Yankees are on pace to be a 100-win team. 
And there are people I, who follow me on Twitter saying, fire Cashman. Fire Boone. They could win 100 games and people are going to demand the GM and the manager have their heads on a damn plate. This is, I mean, of course, it's because the Red Sox are having the greatest season in the history of their franchise. They're playing 708 ball for the whole year. At the beginning of the year, I said if they win 96 games, as a Red Sox fan, that's all I could ask for. Win 96 games. Just win 96 games and all will be well in the world. Well, guess what? They have 42 wins or 42 games left. If they go 11 and 31, if they play 20 games under 500 for the rest of the season, they will achieve that goal of winning 96 games. That's the kind of year they're having. I actually kind of feel badly for the Yankee team as it is. As Severino has stunk recently and Sabathia is on the disabled list and Tanaka has been shaky, yet they're going to win 100 games. Shouldn't you be praising the general manager for that? Shouldn't you be praising the manager for that? I don't know. It's strange, but that's how baseball operates, especially when you have sky-high expectations. And, of course, all of this is moot. If the Red Sox don't win the pennant, no one's going to remember they're going to win 110-some-odd games this year. And whatever team for the National League is, is all clumped together right now, one of them is going to the World Series and will be remembered forever by that fan base. So it's all moot. Hey, I want to talk about something else, though. Those are team things. Last night, the Yankees lost to Jacob deGrom. And with that you know, with that victory by the Mets, the deGrom is now a 500 pitcher. He's 7-7. Seven and seven. And there is debate for the Cy Young Award. Now, I believe that that DeGrom, if he doesn't win the Cy Young Award, he should certainly come in second. I think you can make uh, compelling cases for uh, Aaron Nola and for Max Scherzer. But I do think that we have to do something to reevaluate our notions of the Cy Young Award. Now, of course, it's not a brave stance on my part to say... Don't look at the win-loss total. The win-loss total is overrated. There's a thousand explanations for why that's so. You know, obviously, you have you know you have instances where a, a pitcher pitches badly as a start, and but has the run support and wins. And you have instances like Rich Hill threw a no-hitter through nine innings. But it went to extra innings. He let up one run in the tenth and got the loss. The guy threw a no hitter because he let up one run in the tenth. He gets to put that in the loss column. The guy can throw, you know, five innings and let up six runs. But if the other team winds up going on a rampage, this happened with Eduardo Rodriguez in one of the games against the Yankees, where he pitched. He did not pitch well at all. Let up five or six runs in five innings, but got the victory because the Red Sox unloaded on Jonathan Holder. 
you know, it's not that wins and losses is an overrated stat. It's just it doesn't really have any value as a metric for the quality of the pitcher. It does have value as a storytelling stat. Why did this person get the win? Well, because they rallied. Oh, that's it tells you the story. But what if, you know, one of the things about awards and stats that has been fun in the past, which is not as fun now, this is not me being a Luddite, this is just me saying that baseball debates used to be about this is, you know, let's look at this stat, let's look at this thing, let's evaluate this person. Well, yeah, but he did it for this bad team or he did it for this good team or, yeah, you know, all these different ways that you would debate stats and debate metrics for a off-season award. A lot of times when it's something like war or some, you know, new stat that is difficult to quantify, and by that I mean like you could lead the league in war, but at what point do you overtake the other person? It's not like you got a base hit. It's like, okay, now with that base hit, he leads the league in war. It's this sort of vague calculation, which I still don't understand how it's calculated. And every time I ask someone, how is war calculated? The response I usually get is, well, it tells you how many more wins you get over a replacement player. I said, yes, I understand what it is. I don't know how you get to that number. And it's, I'm sure it's a complicated algorithm. I'm sure, and of course, the fact that Fangraphs and Baseball Reference have different numbers, it shows you that there are variances, that this leans more to that, this leans more to this. And I'm sure, and I, I wind up looking at the results of war and saying, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I can understand that. So obviously it, it has some sort of merit. And also, if I'm a general manager... I want to use every advanced stat on the planet. And I think the rise of fantasy baseball has also made a lot of people more interested in advanced metrics because they're being their own makeshift general managers themselves. So they want to build a team the way that a a real-life general manager would do. I get that. I get all that. But one of the other things it's done is it's taken some of the fun out of the debates that you have. If you're debating this player, this player is the MVP. I think this player is the MVP. Well, here's the war. War is higher. That's it. Bye. Oh. All right. Um, how did you get that number? Uh, someone in this room calculated that. Oh. All right. Well, um, I guess I'll, I guess I'll go. Bye. Are Are you gonna finish that chicken? No. Okay. All right. All right, well, bye. All right, maybe it's a slight exaggeration, and I probably would have taken the piece of chicken anyway. But let's come up with a compromise. What if we eliminated wins and losses just in general? Like, we just don't talk about wins and losses as a pitcher. We don't do it as a player, as an offensive player. Mookie Betts hit for the cycle the other day. Ah, but the Red Sox lost, so therefore that goes against Mookie Betts. We don't do that. We don't do that at all. And you see strange things with the win-loss total. You'll hear things like, well, the manager wanted to keep him in there through five so he can get the win. What? I can understand a manager wanting to keep a pitcher in through five because the bullpen is taxed, or keep him in through five because in a couple of batters there's a very favorable matchup. But to get an arcane stat, 
What if we just eliminated it altogether? Not just for the Cy Young talk, but just just in general and how we evaluate a pitcher, even how we look at who's starting today. And right now you take a look at their win-loss record in, the, in their ERA, and you're like, oh, they're, they're having a good year, oh, they're having a bad year. Well, if you take a look at Jacob deGrom, he's having a mediocre year. Through the wins, I, I, here's something, I can't illustrate it clearer than this. Anyone still hanging on to the wins is a valuable metric. Jacob deGrom is having an unbelievable season. A season that anyone with a pair of eyes and a brain can see is at least at least a Cy Young contending year. Sonny Gray is having such a disastrous year that he's been moved to the bullpen and is staying in the bullpen even though the Yankees' rotation is so thin they asked me if I can do a spot start. And yet, Sonny Gray has more wins than Jacob deGrom, even with his win last night. One player is a catastrophe. The other player is transcendent. And yet, Sonny Gray has more wins than Jacob deGrom. Well, I guess I'll start Sonny. He's won more games. No. No. So what if we just... When we look at a player's stats, even just using traditional stats, even if you're just not wanting to do, you know, any advanced stats, even just looked at the regular stats for a hitter, that doesn't reflect the team's win-loss record, right? If you look, whether you look at average or OPS or 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 even you know whatever it is you want to look at, home runs. You want to look at if you're into runs bad in. If you're into uh, whatever, what even more advanced, whatever it is, the team's win-loss record doesn't reflect that. So what if we looked at pitchers, like look, let's look at the Cy Young race right now, and just eliminate wins and losses. It's not even a factor. And what happens? I uh, take the three, um, the three highest totals, and this is a. Bon- I'm gonna I'm gonna create a compromise here. For the people who hate wins and losses, if you're an advanced metric where you hate wins and losses, I'm eliminating that. If you like traditional stats, I'm using traditional stats for this evaluation. I'm throwing one more bone to the sabermetrics crowd. I'm taking the three highest war total for pitchers to take a look at the National League Cy Young race. You'd have Jacob deGrom, Aaron Nola, and Max Scherzer. And you're going to use what I'm calling the average start. The average start is... Taking just their starts, if they have any relief appearances, I'm throwing those away. Just taking their starts, how many innings do they throw a start? How many earned runs do they let up a start? How many hits do they let up a start? How many strikeouts do they let up a start? And how many walks do they let up a start? All stats that anyone who follows the game can understand, and we're just looking at their individual performance on average. This is what their average start would be. And of those three, they're, it's actually razor thin. They all finish around six and a half starts an inning. Uh, six and a half starts, uh, six and a half innings a start. Easy for you to say, I'm not even going to edit that out. Scherzer has six and, 6.7, DeGrom 6.6, Nola 6.4, all right around each other. How many earned runs do they let up a start? Well, DeGrom leads it with 1.3. Uh, Nola each with 1.6, 1.6. 
Scherzer lets up the fewest number of hits per inning for per start, strikes out the most, and DeGrom walks the fewest. And those three are right now, with about a month and a half to go, are completely bunched together. If you remove the wins and losses, of which Scherzer has the best record, 15 and 7, Nola's 13 and 3, DeGrom is 7 and 7. You remove that, and without getting all fancy, just looking at what their average start is, you see that the Cy Young race is absolutely piled on. Neck to neck to neck. That these three pitchers, you know, you may have more strikeouts from Scherzer, you may have fewer walks from DeGrom, but they're all three are, you know, the, the only the only stat that someone has a really big, uh, really far behind on is Nola has about two strikeouts fewer per average start than DeGrom and three fewer than Scherzer. But everything else is razor thin. And we're just, we're not, I'm not getting fancy on it. I'm just looking at, here's how they performed. Because most advanced metrics is, a, it seems to be about projecting what they're going to be doing in the future when the Cy Young Award is a reward for what they've done in the past. The American League race, using the top four candidates, Trevor Bauer, Corey Kluber, Chris Sale, and Justin Verlander, is also razor thin. They all have around six and a half innings, uh, uh, six and a third to six and a half innings per start. They all let up between two and 1.3 and two runs. They all let up, you know, small number of hits. Sale has the most strikeouts. Corey Kluber has the fewest number of walks. And if you had a line like that, like say, how sale sales pitching? Instead of saying he's 12 and four, you look at his average start. Six and a third innings, 1.3 earned runs, 3.9 hits, 9.5 strikeouts, 1.4 walks. And you could also use that as the game goes on. Said, so, wow, he's he's you know let up more hits than an average start of his. Ooh, he may be struggling. Ooh, he struck out better than his average. And you've now not done anything super fancy, but you've found a way to look at the stats and look at their performance in a way that isn't based upon how much run support they're getting or how much the bullpen is helping them out. I went back and I looked at a bunch of other classic performances, like some of the great performances of all time through history. And you would see, like, you would have a performance, like, let's say Pedro Martinez in 1997, you know, with 7.8 innings per start and striking out nine in that bunch. And you went back to like, you know, Bob Gibson had an 8.9 innings pitch per, you know, at an average start in 1968. And you, you know, you can compare like, man, back then, you know, eight innings was an average start. Now it's, you know, fewer than seven. Well, that's because the role of the bullpen is different. But you can also look at this the era, and you can look at who's pitching here, pitching there. You know, some of the stats of someone like Walter Johnson was, you know, absolutely bizarre. You know, in 1913, 8.6 innings per start. You know, fewer than a walk per start. Uh, 1.13 earned runs per start. That was the year he won 36 games. But what does 36 wins mean? But now we see, oh, this is what his average start is. The thing I was really interested in is I went back to a couple of Cy Young Award races. And 
evaluated a couple of pitchers who the win-loss record affected how we perceived them. There, the big year where oh, there was a lot of controversy when Felix Hernandez won the Cy Young Award when he went 13-12. and 12. Well, how good a year did he have? He was one game over 500. If you eliminated the wins and losses that year, there would have not have even been the slightest controversy over his two biggest competitors, which were David Price and CeCe Sabathia. He had them for lunch. He had 7.3 innings pitched, uh, 1.85 earned runs per start. He, you know, he beat them in every category with the exception of hits, but pitched nearly two-thirds of an inning more per start, let up, uh, you know, let up his ER, his earned run per start was under two. He struck out more. If you eliminated the win-loss record and you just looked at the average start, there would be no controversy. In 1973, Jim Palmer won the Cy Young Award because he went 22-9. and That year, Nolan Ryan pitched out of his mind. But Jim Palmer got the Cy Young. The, the prevailing mentality was, well, Nolan Ryan strikes out a lot of batters, but Jim Palmer knows how to win. Well, he was playing on the Orioles. The Orioles had Hall of Famers on that team and arguably the greatest manager of all time. And Nolan Ryan was on the Angels. And that year, if you take a, if you did average starts, not only does Jim Palmer not win, he probably comes in third. Nolan Ryan takes him to the cleaners on almost every category. And Burt Blylevin that year, who went 20 and 17, oh, only three games better than 500, also topped Jim Palmer that year in most categories in their average start. You eliminated the win-loss record, and suddenly Nolan Ryan's a Cy Young Award winner. It's funny. I advocated, as much as you can advocate as a high schooler in the 1980s, that Nolan Ryan should have won the Cy Young Award in 1987 when he went 8-16 but led the league in ERA and in strikeouts. And they gave it that year to Steve Bedrosian because he saved 40 games for a Phillies team that was a non-contender. Now, if you take a, and I decide to, to show, let me show you something. Let me show you how great Nolan Ryan's season was. And it was indeed great. He finished fifth in the Cy Young Award, and he had an amazing average start. That being said, Bob Welch may have been better. Bob Welch had a tremendous year that year for the Dodgers, finished eighth in the Cy Young Award vote. But Bob Welch and Nolan Ryan, if you just looked at the average start, should have been neck and neck to win the Cy Young Award. Instead, Welch was eighth and Ryan was fifth. In fact, Welch's year he had that year in 87 towered over his year he had that he did win the Cy Young Award, which was in 1990. But the difference was he went 27 and 6 with the A's team that rolled to the West, and he only went 15-9 and with a mediocre Dodger team in 1987. The win-loss record completely altered how we saw that year. 
And in fact, it alters how we saw another pitcher who was a teammate of Bob Welch, which was Oral Hershiser. A cursory look at his career showed that he was a good, solid pitcher. In 87, though, he was a 500 pitcher. Then in 88, he had this out-of-nowhere superstar season. And then in 89, he went back to being a 500 pitcher. And yet, if you looked at his average start for those three years, even with the year that he won the Cy Young Award and dominated baseball, all three of those years, he had comparable stats in each category of the average start for him. The only difference was the win-loss record. That should have been looked at as a three-year run where he was putting up elite stats. Instead, it's looked upon as two okay seasons and one Cy Young season. I think one of the most uh, egregious Cy Young awards that has ever been handed out was Bartolo Colon in 2005 with the Angels. And the, uh, practically the only stat he, he led the league in was his 18 wins. He didn't have a bad year. They're never going to hand out a Cy Young award to someone who had a bad season. He had a good year. Maybe even a top 10 Cy Young year, but he should. He had no business winning it. And I had always gone by the mentality that Johan Santana should have won the Cy Young award that year. And he was superior in almost every stat with the exception of walks, but that was even within the margin of error, 1.4 for Johan, 1.3 for Bartolo. But every other stat, he cleaned his clock. But then looking around, I said, wait a minute, Mark Burley of the White Sox, that was the year the White Sox went on to win the World Series, pitched more innings, let up fewer walks, comparable in strikeouts, same number of starts. And yet, no one looks at that year that Mark Burley had. Who remembers that as a Cy Young year? It probably should have been down between Santana and Burley. But instead, it was Cologne. What I'm saying is, you can when you bestow the Cy Young Award on a player, that is a title that is with them forever. They're a Cy Young Award winner. And how often that title is bestowed upon them because of a stat that is so flawed as the win-loss record. I'm saying if we remove it and use my method of the average start, I'm not asking you to learn new stats. I'm not asking you to break out a calculator. I'm not asking you to do anything if you're a casual fan or traditional fan or whatever other than look at the actual performance and not the result of the game. The same way you do with a player. The, we do the exact same thing. And if you if it came down to two players, I mean, like as I said, the three Cy Young Award candidates in the American League and the, and the and in the National League are all neck and neck right now. If you want to have the, if it's all even and you're going to err on the side of the team that makes the postseason, well, that's that's a you issue. Yeah, you know, we all have to have the thing that tips the scale one way or the other. But that's part of the fun. That's part of the debate. Debating's fun. Having differences of opinion are fun, and using the stats to make your case. 
So let's, managers don't manage with a win-loss record in mind. That's dumb. And Cy Young voters don't even look at this, don't even refer to it. That is inadmissible as evidence. Let's look only at the average start and see how that lines up for a Cy Young Award winner. And this year, if DeGrom doesn't win, and you can make a very valid case for Nola and for Scherzer, but you're basing that on how they performed, not based upon the team that they play with. So go to sollybaseball.com, like me on Facebook, so I have an iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. If you want to be old school, you send me an email at info at sullybaseball.com. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Talking a little bit about the average start and how we can evaluate a starting pitcher using traditional metrics, but bringing it slightly into the 21st century. This has been Sully Baseball for the 14th day of August 2018. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. 877-337-6666.